0: The old story, the old narrative is the hollow one, but it is deep, deep, deep in the sort of the DNA of systems that the job should be to help us to thrive, to learn to, learn, to thrive in a transforming world, not just a world full of change, but a transforming world. We have to equip hopefully a new generation of politicians with a different story, narrative, taxonomy, evidence, about why that old model has had it and is an egregious failure of stewardship for our young people.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and today's co-contributor is Valerie Hannon, author, speaker, innovator, and really a curriculum disruptor in many ways. She has founded both the Innovation Unit as well as Global Education Leaders Partnership, and she's a radical voice for change, and thinks about educations in different ways. She has been the Director of Education in Derbyshire, as well as an advisor to the UK Department of Education. What really strikes me about Valerie is her emphasis on thriving, her emphasis on what it means to thrive and rethinking educational contexts in order to perhaps not just redefine what success is, but think about thriving within a global context, a community context, interpersonal and interpersonal contexts. I'm very excited about this conversation, though I have to say, it also left me very disappointed. Disappointed because we didn't have time to look at some of the issues that are increasingly uh, meaningful to me, notably those of uh, post-humanism, post-humanist approaches to living, uh, choices, action, and of course, education. Valerie has a lot to see on the subject. She and I had a little bit of an exchange on email and a little bit afterwards as well, but we did run out of time. So I'm sending this out to see if she will be kind enough to uh, accept a second invitation where we can look at how we can break down the uh, anthropocentric binaries uh, in order to really uh, take thinking and action forward for the uh, health of every living being, every living thing, including plants on the planet. Um, anyways, I'll leave space for my conversation with Valerie. I will also apologize because my audio section is a bit scratchy, um, but I hope you'll, you'll forgive me. I was uh, away, didn't have access to much of the equipment. Anyways, I'll leave space. Thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Well, thank you, Valerie. I'm really excited to have you on our podcast. Uh, I've uh, read some of uh, your material. I know your book is out and I've ordered it, but it takes forever to get to Thailand. Uh, but uh, but I'm, I'm really keen to, to to read it, as well as uh, as to continue following up on, on some of the, the, the great work that you're doing. Um, the first thing I'll do is ask you a couple of questions that I ask all our guests. Uh, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference?
0: Oh, who am I? Well, I'm Valerie Hannan. I'm based in the UK. Um, some of my time in London, not so much at the moment, because London is still very, very slowly, glacially unfolding from lockdown. Currently, I'm up in the countryside in Derbyshire. It's um, the beginning of spring and it's very beautiful. So I count myself as very fortunate and I haven't gotten ill during the pandemic nor have anyone close to me. Um, I am very old. I've had a very long career in education um, and taken on most roles, I guess. Um, Started off teaching secondary school, um, went into research, went into education administration, management and leadership. Um, I ended up a a local government career as the director of education for Derbyshire, which was about 400 schools, um, partly rural, partly urban. Um, An interesting time because I was there during the Blair government years when the mantra was very much expansive, education, 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 all of that interesting period. Anyway, I then got very absorbed in the concepts of creativity and I worked with Ken Robinson on the Creativity Committee was a co-author of that report, and as a result of it ended up going to um, advise the Education Ministry on issues around creativity in education, wholly unsuccessfully I would say, completely unsuccessfully, and um, as a long story, but as a result of that I ended up founding a not-for-profit which is called Innovation Unit. Um, It's based in London, but it's also got an innovation unit in Australia and New Zealand, and um, as the name on the tin suggests, the whole focus of innovation unit, um, well, it doesn't say the whole thing actually, it was it's very much about practitioner-led innovation um, and the focus on systems. So we tried, and this was, oh, what now, 14 years ago, to bring the techniques which are familiar now, but which were not then of design thinking, um, prototyping, all of that to education which at that time was very much <clears throat> stuck in a kind of research practice model. You know, long, four or five year research projects, then the findings, and then trying to work out if they apply to education. <clears throat> so innovation as a discipline was really not to be found much. <laughs> Still isn't in a sense. <clears throat> Excuse me. But what we tried to do was bring those techniques to bear. Um, I don't, um, I'm not hugely involved in Innovation Unit now, and indeed it's doing a lot less work in education, it's much more involved in a series of societal challenges like mental health, like um, social care, um, like better dying, um, a whole range of things. Any case, um, although the Australia New Zealand Innovation Unit is very, very focused on, on education. So in the last, I guess, five, six years, I've become just an independent. I've served on a number of boards, but mostly I write and I speak and I consult. And I'm also a grandmother. And this shift in my life has created a new level of passion for me about the future of education. And I mean that very seriously, because till I drop dead, I'm going to be trying to work harder and harder to create the kind of shift that I, uh, with every fiber of my being, know is needed in
1: education. And one of the things about education that is uh, thrown around as a word, just like in politics, there, there are words that are thrown around. It's learning. And I mm. ask every guest, uh, every I shouldn't recall the guest, every every uh, uh, contributor to the podcast, uh, how how they define learning, uh, in, in an effort to try to see if we can have this shared understanding. So, how do you define learning,
0: Benjamin? It's a good question, and. Um, uh, I think it's always a good thing to ask fundamental questions like that. T- just in parenthesis, I'll tell you why. It's because I ended up um, doing the work I'm doing now, because about six years ago, I got asked to write a paper <coughs> called, <coughs> excuse me, I've got a called, What is Learning For? And I, I said, if, 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 first of all, I refused. And I said, well, that's a damn full question. It's absolutely obvious what learning is for. But as I started to think about it, I realized actually it was not, and we seriously needed to rethink purpose. So I like the fact that you're asking fundamental questions. So my answer to that, I suppose, I mean, the, the, the technical definition, of course, is any process of acquisition, of understanding, knowledge, skills, behaviors, attitudes. And that's sort of fine, but it was also rather passive and restrictive for me. So I suppose I increasingly think of it Oh, by the way, we need to understand as well that whilst it was once defined as a personal as a, a, a trait confined to humans, we now talk about machine learning. So there's an interesting definitional issue there. But also increasingly think about plants. I mean, it's clear animals learn, very clear. Um, but also plants. So um, I think these understandings cause us to ask the question. More holistically, and I suppose I think of it increasing as any form of growth um, affecting significant change.
1: And and this uh, you've you've caught, brought up a couple of things that really interest me, um, and and some of the things that that we're trying to write and, and think about it and, and introduce. And and it's this idea of of the mm-hmm. what for, uh, which I know yeah. in one of the papers that you wrote is is we've been focusing a lot on the how, but not the what for, and that naturally brings us to purpose. Uh, yeah. and and i'll and i'll start with this what for and what purpose is and maybe try to lead the conversation towards this idea of uh what for maybe for the planet um, not just to save the trees uh, but also to rethink our value system perhaps uh in terms of living beings uh be it be, be they sentient or green or, or whatever it might be how, how does your work take us towards the what for? And and what kind of shifts do schools have to do in order to move away from this how, which is still very contentious towards the what for, which is hopefully going to bring us together?
0: Right, well, there's a whole set of nested questions in there. So let me try to take it layer by layer. Um, I kind of work backwards. As I've said, I, I invested a lot of time and energy in setting up an innovation unit. Why? Because I saw that the how the processes and practices going on in our institutions, known as schools, were dysfunctional, were not serving learning as broadly defined as we have just touched on it. Um, we're bringing about great unhappiness in the world, actually, and we're not creating the kind of societies that we need. And I was asking myself, what are we doing wrong here? Why aren't we getting the traction we want um, when we give alternative answers to the how? And manifestly, there are better answers around, you know, different approaches, but yet we get no traction. And the the improvements and the shifts that we see are usually in spite of systems rather than because of them. And I'm not interested in just changes at the margin. I'm interested in big, fat, juicy, mainstream changes that affect the most disadvantaged who don't stand a chance without um, mandatory schooling systems. So that was my kind of starting question. And I realized that and this goes against my grain in a sense, stories, narrative, are what really matters. And everything starts with the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And when I looked at the story that's told about education, what's it for? The answer became increasingly apparent to me that very deep, I mean, like really deep in the DNA of systems is an economicist answer. That it's about the national level. It's about more prosperity, defined usually by GDP, a terrible, terrible indicator metric, (laughs) increasingly despised by economists, interestingly. But the whole thing is predicated on more and more growth, more and more growth, infinite growth in a finite planet. And by the way, the connection between, I mean, it might seem commonsensical that the higher educated your population, the more prosperous your um, nation, it's actually a much more complex process than that. At the individual level, the narrative is, well, you study hard, you 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 snatch a bunch of credentials, you get into a better university, you snatch your credentials there, you get a better job, and you've got a good life. Um, None of which holds anymore, actually. My book goes into why that doesn't hold. I mean, clearly, at the most primitive level, there is currently what you'd call a a salary dividend between those who've got a a college degree and those who don't. But looked at in the bigger picture, it is far more complex than that. And most of all, most of all, that kind of model um, really casts into the kind of darkness the proportion of your population, whether it's 50% in the UK, US, or whether it's uh, 84% in Hong Kong, into the non-degree category, you don't really count, you know, who are very much second status. And there's a fantastic book, if you don't know it, I do recommend it, <clears throat> by Michael Sandel, <clears throat> called The Tyranny of Merit, in which he shows how that process, that, that alleged meritocracy, brings hubris to the winners, and a sense of indignity and humiliation to the losers. And he even talks about the wounded winners, because in a sense, nobody wins from that sort of system. Um, And it's a toxic mix, which I think he shows quite brilliantly, leads straight down the line to Trumpism, the sense of humiliation and exclusion that large proportions of the population have, because they are not part of this academic rat race, They they seem to have failed in it, and so what are they worse? And, of course, what we've learned in COVID is that they're the people who keep societies running. It's not the financial analysts. It is not the PhDs and the MBAs. Any case, so the old story, the old narrative, is a hollow one, but it is deep, deep, deep in the sort of the DNA of systems, And so whenever you come to talking about trying to change an assessment system or introducing different forms of pedagogy, actually, that's not what you're arguing about. You're arguing against a mental map, a mental model of education, which has a different set of purposes, which are completely misaligned to what we want to do. So I tried to start from first principles and said, right, what are the big changes that are coming down the line as far as we know, from the scholars, the theoreticians, the analysts, who are looking at our futures. And of course, prediction is a dangerous game. I mean, you know, if we could predict the future, we wouldn't have too many problems. But many things can be predicted. There are wild cards like unforeseen pandemics. By the way, this one was foreseen, so it doesn't count. But meteorites, what have you, unforeseen. there's plenty that is foreseen. And what I try to do in my book, which is called Thrive, is to look at what I call three big pivot points in humanity's history. One is around the broken dysfunctional relationship with the planet, which is possibly approaching a point of no return. The second is the apotheosis of technology, in which technology is gaining not just godlike status, um, but is in an interesting dance of control with us as a species. And the third is the evolution of our species itself, upon which we as a species increasingly exercise direct control through genetic engineering, never happened in the history of humanity before. So I look at these three big inflection points in history and say, okay, if that's what we're facing, What should be the job of education systems in that context? And my proposal is that the job should be to help us to thrive, to learn to to thrive in a transforming world, not just a world full of change, but a transforming world, because these three shifts are fundamentally transformational. And so what I'm trying to do there is find solid kind of like... um, contested, unideological ground for a future of, of learning. Can you argue that we, should, we don't want to thrive? I, I kind of think it's you know axiomatic really. But the thing is, what do you mean by thriving? So then I go into four levels and it seems to me there are four fundamentally related, inextricably related levels of thriving. The first is the one that you've picked up, are thriving at the planetary or the global level because if we don't do that, we're toast. We have had it. The second level is the societal or the community level. How do we create thriving societies? Now, you could say that's a more contentious issue. It is, but there's also data, there's also evidence about what lends towards thriving societies. And I rely on the evidence a great deal. For example, there are a number of indicators. Could you argue that if a society has got high levels Of perinatal mortality, postnatal depression, suicide, homelessness, illiteracy, unemployment, and poverty. Could you call it a thriving society? I don't think so. I think anybody could, on any ideological basis, argue that. So there is sociological work that tries to aggregate those indicators and say, what kinds of societies drive towards better outcomes on those indicators? and they happen to be societies which elevate equity above everything else. They're not the richest societies in the world, they're the most equitable, So I think it's a really, really interesting finding. So, okay, second level, thriving societies. How do we drive towards thriving societies? Third level, interpersonal relationships. Again, not just a, a my opinion or an ideological point, research shows that good lives derive from great relationships. And for me, that is a learning challenge. It should be at the heart of learning. It's not about good luck or good genes or a good family. It's a learning issue. And then of course, the very final level, which loops back to my first one actually, is thriving as an individual, intrapersonal thriving. How can learning, organized learning, drive towards enabling young people to acquire sound mental health, Um, A sense of personal purpose, um, a sense of meaning, a sense of peace, um, knowing who they are, as well as personal physical thriving, knowing how your body works, knowing what in dietary terms really suits you, knowing how to find the right exercise regime for you. It seems to me that kids leaving school would have an absolute entitlement To know their body, like as if they'd been given a user's manual. You know, it took me forty years to discover I couldn't I couldn't tolerate caffeine. I mean, seriously. Uh, In school, we ought to be enabling a young person to get to know themselves in the fullest way, and part of that is through nature. And so that brings me back full circle to our relationship with the planet, and of course. One would simply look at, well, I mean, you know, I can cite some of the data which shows how manifestly, how egregiously we're failing on these indicators. You look at the epidemic of mental health, mental ill health, suicide rates, not just because of COVID, um, self-harm, depression, anxiety amongst young people. In the UK now, a third of 11-year-olds are obese, clinically obese, and that's not uncommon. Um, and so the issues are so interlinked, it's a fascinating piece, but I, I think I found it helpful in putting this to educators to say, think about thriving at all these four levels because they're so intimately connected. There's an evidence base for putting them forth, and if you accept that, then they lead to very different learning goals. And so what I try to do by the end of my book is to say, throw out there. Here are some new learning goals. I probably haven't got them right, but at least let's debate them, you know, let's debate them. So I've thrown them out there for debate. And I mean, I can take you through those if you like, but it's from those that you then say, okay, what are the practical consequences for the how? And the book, by the way, contains, I don't know how many 40, 50 Pathfinder examples of schools who are working on exactly these challenges.
1: And that's the question, these schools, are they going to be independent? And by independent, I mean independent schools, but independent from the system, or is there room to change within the system? It seems to me that it's um, just keep going against the grain, against the grain, against the grain, that maybe it's about declaring independent and saying, fine, you do your thing, we'll do our thing, Uh, because there comes a point where there's just very little common ground and, and so much energy is spent doing these debates. But at the same time, how do we go get around and, 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 and spread these uh, these ideas, these thoughts, these, these movements? What, what are your thoughts on, on whether it could work within the system or whether it has to be broken out of the system?
0: Well, I'm tired of doing work that's in the margins and, and beautiful exceptions. Um, and I know them all over the world and they're terrific. And quite often they've done exactly what you've suggested. Um, become quotes, free schools in whatever, so that they can take this path. And I'm, I'm not devoting the rest of my time to that. They're fantastic as exemplars, and they're essential. I I call them in my book, Pathfinders, because that's, how I think, what they're about. But what I'm about now is the systems. I said that right at the beginning of our talk, because um, you know, we have to, this is urgent. We have to Harness the resources, the multi billions that go into state education systems to change direction and start to enable young people from wherever they come, and particularly the most disadvantaged who stand the least chance actually, to have access to a different form of learning. And so I come back to this issue of narrative. My, I mean, it comes down to your theory of change, really, Benjamin. My theory of change, as I've said already, is that narrative and the story we tell ourselves is critical, and purpose is critical. And so I think what we need to be doing is try to influence, or i put it this way, try to build the public will for change. And politicians, I've realised, are kind of stuck in an echo chamber, telling the old story, as I've just said it out. And they don't tell it, they take it for granted for fear, really, that if you if you go beyond that, you're, you're ridiculed as some old flippy-floppy hippie, you know, not hard-nosed understanding what education is really for. So we have to equip, hopefully, a new generation of politicians with a different story, narrative, taxonomy, evidence about why that old model has had it and is an egregious failure of stewardship for our young people, and so my work now is is trying to put out there in the public domain wherever I can find a platform to get these ideas out. But particularly focusing on upcoming politicians to say, you know what, education isn't usually even important in political dialogue. I mean, if you look at any kind of education, any political manifesto, notwithstanding the likes of Tony Blair saying education, 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 usually that meant you, what it really meant was we just put more funding into the same old model. That's if it exists at all. Usually, it's ninth or tenth down the agenda. And I want to elevate education to being really central to what we're trying to do as as societies, as as a as a species, actually. Um, and so, my answer to your question is fine if people feel life is short and they want to get into you know quotes beautiful exceptions and and work out with the snap out with the system i get it i understand why <clears throat> but i think that's not going to get us where we need to be
1: and, and uh, to paraphrase the uh, max planck the the nobel uh scientist the physicist who you know who worked with the quantum theory he said uh, you don't you don't try to convince people about your theories they won't accept it you wait for them to die out and the next generation will accept it and maybe there's a little bit of that bringing on people who actually have are experiencing, you know um a different generational uh, set of, uh, of challenges um, than than the politicians who may be in power now. Um, I guess my next, my next question is, I mean, for in terms of schools, and we talk about narrative. I mean, school itself is, is in many ways fiction. Uh, I mean, it didn't exist thousand years ago. It probably didn't even exist five hundred years ago in the current system that we have. And not to say that it's oh, it's an industrial model based on the Prussian system, but even more about that, it's 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 about you know making sure that kids are off the street. Making sure that uh, you know there's a certain value set of, uh, for instance, in France, republicanism. But we can also change that story of what school is for. Working there because this idea that school has always existed is eternal is is also completely uh, um, that's actually inaccurate. And and within the historical context, what are we looking at in terms of the purpose of school itself? Um, If we're thinking about sure thriving, but many people will say, but but we need jobs. So so working. Ad jobs, in the middle, there's university. What's the role of university in this?
0: Well, in between, there's many things. I point out again, university is for a, a, a proportion, in some societies, a very small proportion of the population. And universities, I mean, you talked about the history of schools. Um, the history of the universities has always been an elite one. Fundamentally, initially, it was about... Um, uh, <laughs> It was about religion, actually. It was about the perpetuation of of religion, and then scholarship, um, and the academe as a a kind of an ivory tower. And the opening out of the university to larger swathes of the population has been much slower, and a a very recent um, shift. So I think the university's got a huge job to rethink their task. And their role and their purpose alongside other tertiary organizations for learning alongside all kinds of colleges and you know i I don't i don't pretend to have an answer to this but i i know very well that there is a huge debate to be had not least in the wake of covid which has busted a hole in their whole business model any case um and the way in which you know we can now zoom with any experts across the world Um, So how does the old business model work for universities? So I think um, there's there's a massive debate to be had around what universities are to be, the role that they are to play. Um, By the way, I don't want to denude scholarship, but I also don't want to denude the idea of us all having vocational purpose, us all thinking about what is our personal purpose in life and not doing a kind of a three-year, distant degree and then coming out of it and saying, oh, what am I going to do with myself? I haven't got the faintest idea. So that's a a few random observations. Um, But I want to bring you back to the notion of the school itself. And because in the last, my latest book is not Thrive, that's just um, come out this year as a second edition. But later in 2021, my book called The Future School will come out. Um, which deals specifically with these questions about the institution of schooling, which, as you remark, as you opened up this question, has had a whole range of functions since, since the ancient Greeks. Actually, the, the ancient Greeks did have little schools, <clears throat> um, less building-based, but anyway, I've traced a very brief history of the notion of the institution of school from you know open-air schools, schools of the air, um, and so on, particularly in the light of... challenge from technology in which, as we speak, possibly Elon Musk or Jack Ma um, or Jeff Bezos is plotting a very different future in which the institution is no longer required at all. The clinic is completely disintermediated and everything can be done through your tech. Well, you remarked on keeping the kids off the street and In the old discussions about the functions of schooling, it used to be pejoratively called the custodial function, like, cut, you know, who cares about that? Well, i tell you what, during COVID, everyone discovered that they really did care about that. It really does matter. And I think what's shifted is that, on the one hand, we want to be able to say kids ought to be able to go to a different place, a different space, outside the family, and parents to know that they're safe, and that the parents or the caregivers can conduct their adult lives confident of that, but doing whatever it is that gives their life both purpose, meaning, and income, and so on. So let's not be too sniffy about the custodial function It's important, but I don't think we are now looking at the old rigid five days a week, eight till four or nine till four, whatever it is, but rather, a much more blended, a much more hybrid approach, incorporating the tech, incorporating different spaces, which is why I talk endlessly about learning ecosystems, about other spaces and places that could be used for learning, choreographed by the school, guaranteed, if you like, quality assured by the school, who could see itself as a base camp for learning, a base camp for learning rather than the sole transmitter of knowledge, which it transfers from one head to another. But I just want to finish this little set of remarks by saying I am passionately committed to the school as an institution. It chills my blood to think that this will be wiped aside by the tech solution. Um, everywhere, you know, individual kids communing with their screen. Because if you look at the four levels of thriving i just talked about, I do believe that we need institutions as physical spaces where people come together face-to-face, not in the regimented way that we see now, but in a much more sophisticated, and you know again, there's plenty of examples around the world where this is happening, it's not rocket science, but where they come together face-to-face, meet people from different families, different circumstances, different viewpoints. There are so few places public spaces in our world now. The high street's going to be wiped out by the epidemic. And where are the spaces where people actually come together again and outside of their, their, their bubble, either of the home or the, or the computer? So I think that the school as a, as a physical social institution is absolutely critical to thriving societies but only if it's redesigned. And that's where I get into the whole issue, which is the last part of my work in this last year around design principles for schools for the future.
1: Well, listen, Valerie, I really wanna thank you uh, for for talking with us. And uh, I'm gonna leave you maybe a little bit of space to see if there's anything else that's on your mind or things that you're thinking about. You shared so much, but maybe things that uh, that you'd like to uh, to put out there that that um, that, um, uh, that that you find are important that maybe we haven't touched you. It's a little bit like the et cetera section, um, <laughs> but, but always very important.
0: Well, thanks for that. Um, no, I think I'd just say to your listeners, view, viewers, whatever, um, please look at the books, not because I particularly want to sell books, nobody makes money writing books, I can tell you that, but because I want people to engage with the ideas and I'd welcome people connecting with me, I'll, I'll go anywhere or, or, or Zoom with anyone in the world to debate these ideas and to try to get a different vision out there, which I know you're part of, Benjamin. But I say again, I think that the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, what all this is for is the fundamental founding um, piece that we must get right before we can start getting into issues about the how. What curriculum, how assess. We're just we're just scratching the surface, if we start there, rather than upstream upstream with the fundamental questions. And the more people debate those fundamental questions, having conversations in the classroom, with parents, building the public will for change, that is what for me is the big prize. And I know I'm devoting the rest of my life for it anyway.
1: Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks. This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud. I'd like to thank Valerie for being a co-contributor to the show. I really do hope uh, we'll have a chance to explore more uh, of her thinking, of her actions, of the way she will... Uh, do all her efforts to change the world. In the meantime, please uh, check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. We always look forward to your comments and thoughts and any kind of contributions you might have. If anyone out there is listening, uh, has a view on how we can open up the educational ecosystem beyond the walls of the classroom, beyond the walls of the school, I'd be very interested in hearing from you. Uh, it's certainly something that uh, has been uh, picking my curiosity and taking uh, up uh, quite a bit of my thinking. In the meantime, thank you so much. I uh, look forward to um, having uh, our next guest, uh, Noah Sobe, who is part of UNESCO's uh, education, Futures of Education um, initiatives, and uh, that will come up probably next week. In the meantime, looking forward to uh, hearing from you soon, and uh, all the best.